could turn to Ephesians, not Ephesians chapter 2, but Philippians chapter 2, if you like. We'll be there in a little while. And we're in the downhill slide now towards Easter, which is the first Sunday of April. It's also the first Sunday uh, we'll be restart, resuming our Sunday school hour at 10 o'clock here at the church. I look forward to that great uh, restarting of the, the Sunday school on Easter Sunday at 10 o'clock here at the church. Of course, Easter Sunday is the, uh, it's a global, it's kind of a global holiday, right? I mean, everywhere you go in the civilized world, with few exceptions, you're going to run into Easter Sunday, some kind of Easter observance. Of course, Easter observance uh, in some um, quote-unquote Christian groups has already started with Ash Wednesday, the putting of ash on foreheads, and then you had the Lenten season, which is what we're in, in now, which all come to an end on uh, Easter Sunday. But the reason why Christians celebrate Easter is because it marks the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This will be, be no surprise to you that one of the earliest controversies in the Christian church was over when that day is supposed to be celebrated. One of the, the earliest letters from Clement of Rome was a, he would send out an official letter telling everybody when Easter Sunday is supposed to be observed on this particular year because of the phases of the moon and the way the, the, way the, uh, the seasons would work, would work out uh, with the Jewish calendar, then the, uh, the Roman calendar. And it's almost so confusing, in my opinion, that to know the exact date <laughs> might, be, might be questionable, might be questionable. But I want to talk to you this morning about who is Jesus? Who is this man that we worship? Who is this man that we adore? Who is this man whose name that we wear so proudly and whose teachings we try to follow? Who is Jesus? Well, we all know that the short answer to that is Jesus is God. Jesus is the divine man. He is God in flesh. And hopefully this morning, I want to be able to show you who Jesus is and why he's the object of Christian worship, and if possible, to cause you to leave this house of worship with deeper love and appreciation for Jesus than when you got here. Deeper love for Jesus when you leave than when you got here. I want you to be more in awe of Christ. I want you to love him. I want you, my hearers, to feel that way, and I want to leave you feeling the same way. And most of all, I hope that if you have come here not knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior, that when you leave this place, when you leave this house of worship, that you will know Jesus is your Savior, that he has taken your sins upon himself and paid the price for them so you could have everlasting life. So the question is, who is Jesus? Simply answered, it's Jesus. Jesus is God. When Jesus lived upon this earth, one of the things that sent the Jewish people into a, into, a, into a tizzy was when they began to realize that he was saying that he is God. It really sent them over the edge. As you read the Gospel of John, you have, you have the, the apostle giving us in John chapter 1 that Jesus in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that this was God in the flesh. John 1.14 and John 1.18. And then when you get to John chapter 2 at the marriage feast, you have Jesus doing a miracle where he defies the laws of nature. Some of the miracles that Jesus did did not go contrary to the natural law. 
But changing water to wine is the first miracle he does that defies the laws of nature. It defies all the laws. There's no physical way you can change water into grape juice. It just cannot happen. But Jesus does it, and he does it in a miraculous way. He doesn't do it for a few drops of water. He does it for gallons of water. Gallons. Depending on the measurements you, you, that you believe are accurate in that story, it could have been a hundred gallons or so of water turned into wine. Turned so completely into wine that the people who drank it had no idea that this had been water a few moments before. Jesus is God in the flesh. And when you get to John chapter number 5, Jesus goes down to the pool of Bethesda, and there around that pool of water, there's a lot of people laying who are, the Bible calls them impotent. They didn't have the power to move or do anything. And Jesus goes down there, and the people were waiting, the tradition is, they were waiting for an angel from heaven to come down and stir the waters of this little pool. And the first person to get into the water while the angels were stirring the water would be healed. And Jesus comes down there. There's a man there who's been, been uh, crippled for a long time, and Jesus heals him. And the, the people there, they say, what are you doing? And here's what Jesus says. He says, my father works in, them, in, in this place, meaning that area, and hitherto, or in the same place I work. He said, my father works here, and so do I work here. You may say, well, he's not exactly saying that he is God. It doesn't sound like he's saying, I am God. He's just saying him and his father do work in the same place. But the Jews, in John chapter 5, verse 18, when they heard that come from Jesus' mouth, my father works here, and I work here. Verse 18 of chapter 5 says they took up stones to stone him because he made himself to be God. Jesus came into the world, the God-man. He has come down from heaven. He's God. And the response of the Jews was to kill him because to them this was the greatest crime he could say, that he was one with the true Jehovah. And over and over, as you make your way through the Gospel of John and in the epistles of the Apostle Paul, there's this constant declaration that Jesus is divine. Now, let's be careful with the word divine. Because have you ever been somewhere and had a dessert and thought, this is divine. <laughs> this is really good. The first time I ever had tiramisu at an Olive Garden, I was like, this is divine. Something sweet, cool, and coffee flavored. It was really good. Divine. You might... Maybe this past week when we had that one real, a couple of really warm days after the really cold days, you may have went outside and thought that the weather felt divine. It felt so good out there. There are a few people who thought that the cold was divine, but we don't believe that they are sane, <laughs> that they have lost their mind, you know. But we have to be careful with the word divine. We're saying Jesus is divine. We're saying that Jesus is from heaven, that he is deity that He is God, that He is not like you and I. He is different. He's different. He's the God-man, truly God and truly man. So when we say He's divine, we're saying that He is God. That's John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. He is God. And then in John chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, the Bible tells us that Jesus is also the Creator. The Creator. Now, Please, don't get lost in this, in, in this thinking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
A lot of times when the Bible uses the word God, it's talking about the Trinity, the three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who are all God, all equally God, all fully God, all completely God, that they're working together in something. And as you read the New Testament, you see that the creative act is attributed to Jesus over and over again. It was not Jesus acting apart from his Father, but in Colossians it says that the world was created through or by Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together in the creative act to make all that is appear out of nothing. And there's another wonderful thing that the triune God works in, the Father, Son, and Spirit together. They work together in the salvation of your soul, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is the creator. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says that the blood that has purchased the church of God is the blood of God. It's divine, holy blood. It's the blood that flowed through the veins of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 to 19, the Apostle Paul again declares that Jesus is divine, that he is God. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1 and read these beautiful words. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, talking about Jesus. Verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom... We have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. In verse 17, and by him, that is by Christ, all things consist. That keeps them together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. This is Paul telling us. This is not just Paul saying this. This is God the Holy Spirit telling us through Paul that Jesus is God, that he is divine, that he is deity. In chapter 2, verse number 9, for in him, that is in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse number 11, it says that there is a throne in heaven. A throne in heaven. I'm turning there while I'm talking. Revelation chapter 4, verse number 11. John has a vision. He sees the heavenly throne, verses 1 and 2. He sees it. It's magnificent. There are thrones around the main throne. And in verse number 11, it says that the person who is on that throne, that the, the four and 20 elders, the heavenly, uh, it's, it's, it's who these 24 are, we're not exactly sure, but these, these heavenly beings, they fall down and they worship he who sits on the throne. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor, and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are 
and were created. Who is this person who's receiving this heavenly worship? Now, my friends, think about this. This is worship that's taking place in the heavenly realm in the presence of God the Father. In the presence of God the Father, someone who is being worshipped, who is equal with the Father, somebody who is co-equal, co-eternal, equal to Him in every way, Jesus. Jesus is God. If you take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 14, you will read about the universal, the universal worship and adoration of Jesus. So my friends, do not allow, do not permit anyone to put Christ in a, in a, in a secondary class. He is the creator himself. He is God. He is the creator. Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Now, who is worthy of this kind of worship? Who deserves this kind of adoration, this kind of praise, this kind of recognition? Who is worthy of this? God is. God is. And that's why Jesus receives this kind of worship, because he is God. God in flesh. God who came down. Now, why does the whole of creation worship him? It's not just simply because he is God, which is enough. But Jesus is worshipped and adored by all the heavenly host and will be worshipped and adored by the earthly host because of something he has done. It is the deeds that really push him ahead of everyone else. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, this, this, is, this, is, this is worth thinking about. Jesus, in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. There is equality here. Sometimes the translation will render this that This equality was not something to be grasped, to be grasped, grasped grasped after or sought for. This wasn't an equality that Jesus was trying to get for himself. I'm hesitant to say it it like this, but, you know, we've we've been living now in the last, uh, I guess maybe the last hundred years, in a time when people who feel feel like they are not equal have been trying to reach for equality. And sometimes a person says, well, that's that's wrong. They can't do that. They're out of their their place. But Jesus here, he is equal with God. And it wasn't equality that he had to grasp after or seek. It's an equality that was his by right. He is equal to the Father. I'm not trying to argue about eternal subordination, those kind of things. I'm talking about him in his office as God. As God, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This is who he is. He's God. But what's he do in verse number seven? He made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself 
coming down from his office, coming down from his deified state in heaven, in the spirit world, coming down and becoming like a man, having flesh, having bones, having hair and eyes and ears that were susceptible to all the things that your hair, eyes and ears are susceptible to. If they had had rifles and shotguns in Jesus' day, if a big gun had gone off near Jesus, his ears would have rang just like your ears ring. When Jesus was hungry, he was hungry. There in John 4, it's that great story where Jesus, he's, he's traveling and he sits on Jacob's well. And the Bible says, being wearied in his journey, he was tired. He was thirsty. He, the divine man, the divine God, coming down and becoming a man. Humbling himself. How far does the humbling come? All the way down to death. The death of the cross. Here is the creator, the one who made everything with the power of his word, who said, let there be light. Let the earth be over here and the seas be over here. Let the earth bring forth creatures and birds and animals and and trees and flowers. Let the earth bring forth. That's all he did. He speaks it into existence. And then on the sixth day, down to the earth he went and formed man of the dust of the ground. And breathed into the nostrils of this thing he had made. And made it a living soul. Made it live. This. This great creator becomes obedient even to death. The death of the cross. And this is, the death of the cross is not a glorious death. It's not a death that comes in a battle. It's not a death that was won in some heroic deed. This is the death of a common criminal. The deified man, the God-man comes down and dies. Not a glorious death. Not a soldier's death. Not the death of a father defending his children against some adversary coming in. But he put him on a cross. They strip him naked. Nail him to a cross. And they crucify him alongside other common criminals. Two thieves. Two thieves. This is the death of the cross. It's what he has done. How does God reward his son for this? How is Jesus rewarded? He's rewarded with universal worship. Jesus, who is equal with the God, came down, humbles himself, obeys the Father even to his own death, and dies. And he's rewarded with with fabulous exaltation. He is, look at verse 9, wherefore, it means the same as therefore, because of what he has done, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. 
And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. And because of what he is and what he has done, this is how he is to be received and thought of by the whole world. By everything that ever has been or will be. Exaltation. That's the exaltation you see in Revelation chapter 4, verse number 5. When you read Revelation, Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see a Jesus unlike the Jesus you've seen so far. He's He's not lowly and meek in the Revelation. He's not hunted and harassed. He's not avoiding difficulty. He's not avoiding trouble. Oh, no. He is the conquering king. And when he comes, he comes to destroy his enemies without mercy, without quarter. Think of it there in that reading where it says that with the word of his mouth in Revelation 19, he destroys his enemies. Jesus, the king, this reward that the father has given to him is because Jesus' death was the death of the divine man, a death commanded by the Father for the redemption of sinners so that the Father could be reconciled to sinners. See, it's in verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. The glory of God the Father. And the Father rewards Jesus here, gives him this name that's above every name. And I want to say this to you for personal application. If you are a child of God, if you are a person who has come to know Jesus as your Savior, if God is your Father, then you too will share in this glorious future exaltation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 9, the Apostle Paul said, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has there entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. If you are here and you're a child of God and you love him, you love your heavenly father, you love the Lord, then you are destined for eternal glory. Eternal glory. Lift it up. The Bible talks about those who are the saved, refers to them as being the bride of Christ, as being connected to Christ. And my friends, if you're, if you're here and you're a lady, you know how it works. If your husband is lauded and exalted, you share in that. You share in it. And you who are the redeemed, as the bride of Christ who belong to Him, you share in this exaltation as well. Through faith in the gospel. Through faith in Christ our Savior. You may say, well, I sure could use a dose of it today because... I'm not really feeling the glorious existence now. <laughs> I could use something from the I could use a down payment. Sometimes the Lord gives it to you. Sometimes there is a little recognition. But often there's not. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. And the life of faith, the life of faith in Christ is not easy. There is difficulty and pain in the life of faith. 
Just as there was difficulty and pain in the life of Jesus himself, there is difficulty. If you're following McShane's reading schedule, then this morning you, you read about the Passover. And you and you're gonna and you read about the difficulties of Israel. And if you keep on reading through Exodus, you're gonna find more difficulties. How the people of God, as they follow the Lord, as they follow Moses, they don't go into blessing after blessing after blessing. They go into tough spot after tough spot after tough spot. Following God by faith. But at the end, there is exaltation. You see, Jesus came and he lived on this earth, a perfect sinless life, but he was hated for it, cursed for it, killed for it. And he died on the cross for it. But after he faced that horrible difficulty, Jesus' whole existence afterwards has been one of unrivaled exaltation. He's been lifted up above all, and he will never, never again be treated like that. And you and I, my friends, we have to live by faith in the same way. Live by faith in the certainty of future glory. Live by certainty, by faith in the certainty of future glory. There is a certain glorious future for those who know Christ. But for those who do not know Christ, there is no future certain glory for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not trusting in Jesus, this is your heavenly realm. This is your heaven. With all of its bills and sickness and burdens and difficulties and relationships that blow up in your face, this is your heavenly realm. Because if you don't know Jesus, when this world comes to an end, you're going to enter the most horrible existence you can imagine. The most horrible thing you can imagine. Just as mind cannot conceive what's prepared for those that love him, I don't think we can really conceive what's prepared for those who don't love him. But through faith in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, then this is your hell. This is the worst it can ever be. And when this life is over, there's entrance into the heavenly realm. And this is how all of God's people have always lived. Abraham in in Hebrews chapter 11 said he lived looking for a city whose builder was God and whose foundations are eternal. Living for that future realm. The Apostle Paul telling Timothy the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse number 8. My friends, if we believe in and are following Jesus, we will not be sorry for it. Just like Jesus was not and is not sorry that he served the Heavenly Father. Believing in Jesus. What does this mean exactly, believing in Jesus? The word believe means to entrust yourself to another. To entrust yourself to another's care or to something that can take care of you. Uh, Maybe, uh, probably three years ago, we went up to uh, the place in the city where they had all the rides, Frontier City. And they had this this thing, it's called, I can't remember what it's called, that's got a steel, it's got a big triangle, the steel cable comes down and you has a body harness you lay down in and they hook you to it and they pull you way back up. And then they say three, two, one, and somebody, and you pull the pin and you swing down. It's just you and a steel cable swinging down towards the water. 
And man, it's scary. Those first few minutes when you pull, when you pull the little pin, you're just kind of hanging there. And you can't help but wonder, is that cable going to hold me? Am I going to make it through? But the guy, the guy who's done it, he's not worried about it at all. He's saying, just trust the equipment. It's okay. Because he did it himself. <laughs> they have to do that every day. They have to test it themselves. I hope they get hazard pay for that ride. <laughs> what if it fails? But this is what believing it, it's entrusting yourself to another or to something to take care of you. When I'm saying believe in Jesus, I'm saying you're trusting Jesus to take care of your soul. So when we believe in Jesus, we are entrusting the fate of our soul to him and to nothing else. And a person may say, well, I don't know if I can trust him. You see, my trust has been violated so many times by so many people. There's no one I can trust. You know, there are young people in our city who, be, who trusted their fathers and mothers, but their fathers and mothers abused them sexually, deprived them of food, beat them, have done horrible things to them. They've tried to trust in teachers. Teachers didn't help them. Sometimes pastors didn't help them. Nobody, nobody would help them. They, try, they put their trust in somebody and just have somebody take advantage of them. I talked to a guy here in Lawton who's a homeless guy, and he said he was with some homeless, other homeless people, and they're all kind of sleeping in the same little patch of ground. And one of those people, he said, I thought I could trust him. One of them injected me with some stuff. And they abused him in an unconscious stupor. There are people whose trust has been violated so horribly that they don't think they can trust anyone. Can you trust Jesus? Yes. You can trust Jesus. Is Jesus really able to save me? Is he really able to take care of my sins? Is he really able to do that? Well, the answer is yes. The answer is yes because of who he is. He's the almighty God. When you're asking Jesus to save you, you're not asking a baby in a manger. You're not asking a dead body on a cross. You're putting your faith and trust in the creator of everything that you can see. And everything that you can't see. Both the visible and the invisible have been created by Jesus. That's who you're trusting in. That's who you're putting your faith in. That's who you're putting your confidence in. It's in the Creator, the Almighty God. You see, when you call upon Jesus to save you, He will save you and He can save you. Now let's end with a reading from Romans, all right? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says... Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. 
they will not find out they put their faith in the wrong person. And there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together and then we'll sing our...